My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. In this episode of the podcast, Sam Lewis will share his story of how going to prison led to his ultimate transformation. Sam's journey may have begun in prison, but his transformation and the way he's transforming the world has never stopped since his release. I first met Sam in June of 2003 while incarcerated in Soledad. Sam Lewis was recently promoted to executive director of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, ARC, and previously served as a director of Inside Programs. A former life-term prisoner himself, Sam understands the various challenges that the reentry population may face. He began transforming himself while incarcerated through the various rehabilitative programs and higher education courses. Despite being denied parole eight times, Sam never gave up, and upon his release in 2012, he completed his Bachelor's of Science degree in Business Administration from Indiana Institute of Technology, graduating magna cum laude with the majority of his studies completed while incarcerated. Sam currently serves on the Los Angeles Mayor's Blue Ribbon Commission on Employment Equity. His passion as an advocate pushes him to continuously seek improvement for himself as he encourages others to live nonviolent lives. Welcome to the Prison Podcast, Sam. It's great to have you on the show, and I know that your story will have a special impact on our listeners. Our audience is largely made up of those who have an incarcerated loved one who they want never to uh, go back to prison again, just like you. Thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, for sure. Would you be willing to to take us back and tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, how you grew up, where you grew up, where did it all start for you? So I grew up uh, in the 80s in Los Angeles, which is now known infamously as South Central Los Angeles, during the height of the crack epidemic and when L.A. was considered the gang capital of the nation. Murders happening weekly all across the county. I was a teenager at that time and found myself smack dab in the middle of it uh, without my father, who had left when I was a kid. Uh, He left in a manner that really scarred me, so to speak, as I was growing up, I saw him actually beat my mom when I was seven. And that, that pain and both betrayal that I felt in abandonment just festered as a kid. And as I grew up, eventually in that environment, it was the perfect environment with the type of tutors or mentors I had that basically were great at what they did. They were great mentors that taught me how to load weapons, semi-automatic weapons and, and, sell dope and, and basically encouraged me in the route and, and in that pain that was manifesting itself in negative behavior. Ultimately, by the time I was 16, I was completely immersed in the gang culture. I had been shot. My mother's house had been shot up. Uh, and I was given as good as I, as I received. So it wasn't as I was a choir boy. I endured a lot of different things while I was a teenager growing up in South L.A., uh, by the time I was 18, I was sentenced to life imprisonment uh, for a horrible murder that I committed and the furtherance in the gang I was associated with. About a month after I was arrested, my daughter was born. Uh, and I didn't know that she would be literally uh, the person that would change my life, her and my mom. So I continued down the path of negative behavior, gangs and drugs while in prison for the first seven years. And in the seventh year, my mom came to visit me, as she often did. This particular time, I was headed to uh, the SHU program, uh, Administrative Segregation and Security Housing, for uh, being involved in in some uh, 
violent behavior inside the institution. My daughter had never seen me behind, uh, if you can imagine, scarred prison glass in the visiting room. And when she walked up to the visiting area that I was sitting in behind the glass, she looked inside with curiosity, trying to understand why I wasn't there to hug her. Instantly, when she saw the change and that I was shackled, I saw this, the look of curiosity change to one of fear. And I knew that the fear that I saw in her eyes wasn't for her, it was for me. It was a question that looked like, what are they doing to my dad? And almost immediately, she said, why are you back there, daddy, and why can't I hug you? And uh, the simple answer that I gave her, which was both true and untrue, was that daddy got in some trouble. The truth of it was I had gotten in some trouble. Uh, the untruth was that I had not been considering what she would go through or putting her first as, as, as a man should. And she looked at me, and if you can imagine a seven-year-old without any judgment, she looked at me, she just simply asked, could you not get in trouble so when I come back, I can hug you? That moment, I, I felt I was crushed. I, I felt that I had betrayed her. I literally could not speak because I knew my, my voice would break. And uh, my mom took the phone from my daughter and she put it to her ear. My mom looked at me and she had said a couple of things. One, she said, you do understand now that everything you do, good or bad, affects the people that love you the most. And I nodded. And she just looked at me and said, what you going to do now? And uh, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to do better. That, that's all I could give at that moment. We finished the visit, and I remember my daughter said, promise that you'll try hard. And literally, that all I could do was nod. I mean, I, I was at the brink of tears. They left, and I went back to the cell that I was in, which was a single-man cell because I'm in administrative segregation, and just thinking to myself, how do I change? What do I do? How can I keep this promise to my daughter? And I didn't change overnight. It wasn't like all of a sudden I started being a good guy in prison. It took time, but it planted to see both in my head and my heart that I wanted to change in that moment. I didn't know how. I just figured out that uh, I needed to at that moment. Yeah, that, that was that aha moment. That was that moment when you ask yourself, do I want to stay here and be this person for the rest of my life or am I better than this? Yeah. Now, you talked about um, being a teenager and, you know, getting involved with, uh, with gangs and guns. What age? Did that start for you? So as, as I said previously, I, I saw my, my dad uh, beat my mom. And that that hurt me in a way that I didn't know how to verbally articulate to my mom. I didn't know how to tell my mom I felt betrayed. The person that I felt was my greatest superhero, was, which was my dad, did this to you. And it hurts. And, it, and it's inside of me. And, it, and it's hurting right now. And I don't know how to deal with this. I didn't, As a seven-year-old, you don't know how to communicate those type of feelings. Right. And so it began to manifest itself maybe four years later in 11, when I was about 11 years old, I started acting out in school, getting in fights. Uh, and, and it was that anger that was inside. Uh, my, my dad was gone and I felt betrayed. I felt abandoned. It was a bunch of emotions that an 11 year old does not know how to navigate. I can speak to these things now because I've done the work and, and went through the therapy to understand what I was going through. But at that time I could not tell you, I remember sitting in front of uh, one of the school psychologists and the school psychologist asking, why am I so upset? And literally I shrugged my shoulders because I, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on with me. I just was upset. I was hurt. And so by the time I was 12, I was already in the gang or, or at the, what, you, what some might call the wannabe phase. But I had started carrying a gun, a knife. By the time I was 16, uh, I had been in multiple incidents where I had uh, been shot at. Uh, or shot. I had a car that had been shot up multiple times. 
And the pattern that I've seen both with the kids that I work with in juvenile hall today and in the Department of Juvenile Justice, and even some of the kids that we work with when we were inside of that together with the We Care program, is one, the positive role models that they don't have and the trauma that they've gone through in a home. So my trauma would be experiencing my father do that to my mom. Uh, and then there are layers of trauma after that, being shot, being jumped on, all those layers of trauma. But the initial trauma was at seven. And each one of these kids that are in juvenile hall have gone through some type of trauma of their own. It, it may be physical trauma that they've suffered instead of what they witnessed. Uh, and then you add to that not having the type of support that's necessary to help them over, overcome that. A lot of these kids uh, grew up in circumstances uh, where poverty plays a role. Can you imagine getting beat up at home by your dad and then going to school hungry because you don't have any money? What do you do as a kid? You're going to either steal, you're going to figure out a way to hustle, you're going to do something because you're hungry. And you don't want to go home and ask your dad because your dad's going to kick you. Mm. So, and, and that's just one of many stories. There, there are so many stories that, that these kids go through these, these circumstances and then they find themselves having to make decisions that they should never be put, put in, in the situation I have to make. Do I sell dope? And if the dope is taken from me, do I get a gun so that it doesn't get taken from me again? Now, if you think about it, a 14-year-old making these decisions, all of that seems like really logical. Yeah. Okay. I sold dope so I could feed myself. Real basic. Right. I, I was robbed for my dope, so I'm going to get a gun to protect myself. And then you're inside for a murder. Now, how do you learn all of these behaviors? Again, those behaviors come from the mentors that we have in the community, sadly. Uh, the examples that, that, that are set in our communities. I was an example like that one. I was 17, and there were kids that were 15 that wanted to come up in, in the gangs. I encouraged them. So I was as bad as, as, as those who had, did the same with me. Right. Now, imagine if we had different mentors for those kids in our communities. Imagine if we made sure that, that we were on the lookout or we were so aware of, of the struggles that our youth go through, we could plug them into the type of resources that are necessary so they don't feel like they have to hustle or steal or rob. I went to the board the first time after 10 years, and I was denied four years the first time. And, and I was half-stepping. I, I needed to be denied that, that four years. And, and I was mad, and I felt like the board had did me unjustly and, and, and had all of the, 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 the reasoning behind it with a bunch of phony paperwork that I presented to them also. Okay. But I started getting into these classes as two things, as a way to satisfy the board and as a way to get out of the cell. But it's kind of like water. If you sit in water long enough and you, or, or somebody pushes you in water, you might not want to drink it, but you're going to swallow some if you get pushed in. And so some of these concepts started taking, taking effect on me in the sense that I remember that I wanted to change, but now I can use some of these tools that I'm hearing. I don't know how to use them yet, but it sounds pretty good. Let me try that. And uh, around maybe... Five years after that, that seven years, I really started putting forth the effort to try to utilize some of the tools that I was able to obtain. There was not a lot of self-help programs at that time. The one that I really started focusing on was a program called Alternatives to Violence. It gave you different tools to be able to, one, approach the world in a nonviolent manner, and it gave you tools to figure out how to de-escalate potentially violent situations. 
And so I started trying to utilize those tools, not successfully all the time, but I started learning ways to get out of a violent situation by de-escalating it instead of escalating it. And as I moved forward, one of the things that I learned within that program was the more that I learned and the more that I gave it away, the more effective it was for me. So that put me on the path to helping others because I understood if I helped others, it was also helping myself. Slowly but surely, more programs became available. And a lot of those programs were actually created by us, uh, the men that were inside, uh, whether they were literacy programs, uh, whether they were leadership programs or speaking programs, but they were programs that we would learn how to facilitate and teach others or facilitate to others in order to help them. And as we're helping them, we're helping ourselves. Uh, We Care, I got involved in We Care in 2005. And We Care was a program where you brought kids in that were in the surrounding area, in the Salinas uh, Valley area, that were getting involved in, in, in different things that might cause them to enter the criminal justice system. And we would literally, it was not scared straight, it was literally a straight talk conversation where these kids would come in and you would share your story with them. And they would see where you lived at and they would see the food that you ate and they would see the gun towers. And we would literally just ask them, how can we help you? We're not trying to scare you, intimidate you or anything like this. This is our life as we have, as it is now. How can we help you not end up where we're at? Right. And I, I, I'm in conversation with a lot of guys in Soledad to this day. And I know that program is, is still going. But I remember we could go back to when they're, you know, all there was going on there was an AA program or two inside the cafeteria, man. And, and to this day, you know, being a, somebody who took a stand for more programs and groups at this time, there's over 80, pro, 80 different programs there. So how many years did you, did you spend inside the, the prison system? A total of 24, almost exactly 24 years. And what was the original um, sentence that you received? When you 15 years to life. 15 years to life at, at the age of 19? At the, I was, yeah, at the age of 19. And, and do you remember being in the courtroom and hearing the judge say, I'm sentencing you to 15 years to life? And what was your experience at the time? I, I remember it vividly. And I just remember at, at that point in my life, it didn't make a difference. I almost felt like this was where I was destined to go. And so he sensed me, and I, the next step was to go back to the gang module and wait to get sent to, to prison. At that point, I, I can't say that I felt, like, afraid or sad or, 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 or anything. I literally felt like I'm headed to where I'm supposed to go. And during that time, Gray Davis was the governor, is that correct? No, no, Gray Davis hadn't become the governor yet, that during that time it was uh, George Duke Major, and then Gray Davis came after. Gray Davis came at a time, so Gray Davis came in the night around '92, I think it was. Yeah. So, so by by this time, he was the first Democratic governor that we had had for a while. So he had tough on crime, and everybody thought Gray Davis would come in and he would give us a chance to go home because. During this time in the Department of Corrections, in the California Department of Corrections, no lifers were going home. So, and there, there had actually been court rulings where when you were sentenced with, to life with the possibility of parole, because no lifers were going home, courts had ruled that California had a de facto life without the possibility of parole, meaning that your, your possibility has been eliminated once you've been sentenced. In other words, you'll die in prison. And 
when Greg Davis came in, everybody thought that he would change that, that he would be, uh, he was a Democratic governor, he would be fair, and he would be just, and, and we wanted our families to vote for him, and he came in, and I remember exactly what he said. You're in here with a life sentence, or if you took a life, you will leave out of here in a pine box. Basically, he reasserted uh, that de facto law saying that you will die in prison if you have a life sentence. And I remember the feeling on the prison yards was one of just hopelessness. Like, we're here, this is it. And by this time, I had, my, my mindset had, had, had went into a mindset of wanting to change, wanting to do better, wanting to be someone, wanting to be the person that, that my mom had actually raised me to be. But that, that hope was stripped right then and there. Do you remember thinking that I might die in here? I remember thinking that too. I remember thinking, I remember other people saying like, that's what's going to happen. And, and, and one of the most powerful things, there was a guy named Godfather around this time. And, and Godfather had went to, uh, he had been in prison since the early 70s. And I remember him getting sick and dying inside right after this had happened and imagining that that's going to be me. Uh, but at the same time, I was, as you said, I, you met me, I was an usher. And, and at that time I was in church and I had a belief that if, if it's meant for me to die in here, then I'm going to be the best person that I can be in here. And if it's meant for me to step out of here, if it's meant for me to be released, when God says I'm going to be released, I'm going home. It doesn't make a difference who the governor is or what the governor says. And so I approached the rest of my time that way. Even in many of the groups, when I, when I was the chair of multiple groups, I remember one prison administrator asking me, why do you want to be chair of multiple groups? It's just an ego thing. And, and I was literally hurt because this, this was a, a an official that I both respected and trusted. And I told that official, I said, it's not about ego or wanting to be the big cheese or whatever you want to call it. I saw that all of the groups that we had were, were kind of fighting amongst themselves for fundraisers and to be able to do things. And none of the leadership would work together. And I thought if I could lead two or three of these groups, and I can guide them and show that we can do this together as a collective. And, and yeah. it created some of a model, but it was never about being a person with ego. It was just about believing that if, if one person could get everybody together. And uh, we did some really great things. And I remember we did joint uh, We Care Alternative Violence Program with youth. Uh, I remember we did joint fundraisers with multiple groups, being able to buy college books, being able to donate funds to different uh, charities outside the communities. And it was more unified that way. But I, I remember the struggles and the frustrations oftentimes leading in those groups. And sometimes really thinking to myself, I should just quit doing all the leadership part of these groups. And I would have friends like you, uh, Jacob Brevard and others that would say, just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing, you're doing good work. And what that translated for me later on, coming home and doing the work that I do now, it really helped me be able to work more with people and put me on the path to continue to grow, be patient, and, and understand the book. Now, in the intro, I shared that you had been denied parole at eight different board hearings. Eight. Well, so was it on the eighth time that you were found suitable? Uh, no, uh, the, the eighth time I was denied. I, actually, the eighth time I was denied under Marcy's Law, so... I went to the board the first time I was denied four years, the second time three years, the third time two years, and then uh, some one-year denials, all one-year denials. And then Marcy's Law came in, and Marcy's Law was the first time, the eighth time I went, and I was denied three years. Now, each time I was denied, with the exception of the first two times, for me, 
I always felt like I had failed my parents, my mom. Uh, I had let my daughter down. And even guys on the yard that I was trying to model a certain behavior for, I felt that I had let them down. It was kind of hard for me to call home and tell them that I was denied again. We got to wait on next year. When they denied me three years under Marcy's law, and I had done, in, in my opinion, honestly, and this is not, this is from the heart. I had felt I had done everything that I could possibly do to prepare myself to go home. And I felt that the reasoning that they had denied me was, was wrong. And I wasn't angry. I was more sad because it was the first time that my mom uh, literally said she didn't know if she'd keep going. Yeah. And uh, it just hit me like, wow, uh, my staunch supporter is, 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 is feeling the weight. And it was also the first time that my mom had wrote a letter to the board from a different perspective. She had written letters of support to the board every time I went. But this last time she wrote a letter and it was from the perspective of a mom losing someone and what I had done to the other parent's child. And it was powerful. It made me really reflect. So after that eighth board hearing, uh, we appealed it, uh, hired an attorney by the name of Charles Carbone and literally the court of appeals, uh, three judge panel sent me back to the board. I ended up before the exact same board commissioners with the exact same line of questioning, and I was found suitable and ended up coming home January 12, 2012. I remember walking out of Soledad, and when where they release you at when you have a ride, there's this gate that you walk out of, and, and you can see Z-Wing and Wildwing, which was the wings that I have been housed in for a while. And I remember guys yelling out the window, we believe in you, take care of business, like just a bunch of positive accolades. And it just like made me feel like I can't, I can't fail these guys. And it kind of like in my head, I said, I, I have to continue to demonstrate both what I was doing inside out here and take it to a next level. And uh, I remember riding home in the, in the, they had rented a van. So we're sitting in the van and it was surreal. It was like any minute, this dream, I was going to wake up and I was going to be back in a bunk inside of a cell. Yeah. And I remember the first stop we made, we stopped. And the, and, and the first thing I thought about, I want some gum. Because <laughs> you can't have gum in prison. Right. And so I walk in and I remember when I, when I left, it was like double mint, hubba bubba and bubble yum. I think those were like the only gums they had or something like that. And I walk up to the counter and it's like a hundred different types of gum. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go with what I know, double mint. And, and it was over, it was a little overwhelming to see the selections that you had. Yeah. And I, I remember my little sister just saying, just take your time. And uh, we drove home. And I remember my mom opening the door and I hugged her and we just both started crying. And then uh, my daughter was at my sister's house. And when we went to my sister's house after my mother's house, and my daughter, like, we both boohoo. And, and my daughter had told me, she said, I thought you was never going to come home, but you kept your promise to me. I remember my older sister had cooked gumbo, my favorite dish. <laughs> we ate, we talked. And one of the things that I told my family, one, the entire family was there. So I just told them, one, I'm sorry. I promise you that I will never let you down again. My sisters, my, my younger sisters was like, don't worry about it. We know. And I was like, no, I want you to hear this from me. Uh, this is part of, of, of me beginning to make amends for, for what I put y'all through. And the rest of the night, we just, we, we talked. 
laughed, played games. I remember us playing Monopoly and spending time with my grandkids. My shift began just with the desire of wanting to change. When my daughter, when I saw the pain I was causing my daughter, I, I wanted to change. The thinking, the shift in thinking was coming to a realization that I didn't like the person that I saw in the mirror. Like, don't be honest, my mom didn't raise me to be a gangster. My mom didn't raise me to be a dope dealer. Like, that's not the person that my mom raised me to be. And, and it's not to cast judgment on anybody else, but I know when a child is born, a child is born innocent. And all the things we go through from a baby until we're of age, like that forms us into to who we are, who we think we are. And then beginning to believe that that I'm 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 bigger than this, I'm better than this. God didn't put me here for this. I was put here to do good. I was put here to give back. And and once you understand that, then you start asking the question yourself, how do I do that? And how do I really do that in a meaningful way? And when you start questioning yourself in those fronts in a, in a confined environment, how do I do that? And, and part of it is I have to change my behavior. If I'm going to be this person that I know I'm supposed to be, one, I can't be involved with, with all the negative stuff I was involved with. I can't be the guy that's starting problems on the yard. I can't be the guy that, that, that's, that's promoting gang violence. I have to be that person that, that's in college, that's in programs, that's, that's putting other people into these programs and saying that we can make a difference in the world. Some people might say, and I, and I had uh, people tell me that sounds corny and like, believe what you want to believe. But if you take every great leader, regardless of what era they're in, they were an individual, but they spoke to the masses. And, and, and the masses believed today as they did. If you took Martin Luther King and put him in the middle of Selma, Alabama, and no one believed in him, we wouldn't, the civil rights movement would not have happened or, or the marches on, on, on Washington would not have happened. He would have been lynched. But for one man to speak out like that, he became one of many voices for, for, for millions of people that agreed with him. But he, he, he lived a life that said, this is how it should be. And so not to com- compare myself to Martin Luther King, uh, he's, he's an icon of somebody that I, that I really, really uh, admire. But I understood that I had to be a certain way all the time. And it was tested many times when I was inside. I remember the day that I decided to step away from the gang. It was the scariest day of my life. The way I might describe it might sound one way, but I was scared to death. And I remember just coming out and telling everybody that I'm done. I'm not doing this no more. When something happens, don't call me. I'm done. And I remember that there were two individuals on the yard that had rank. They're both home, by the way, and one happens to be a deacon. Now, but at that time, I was the one that wanted. I wanted out, and I remember, I knew both of these guys since I was like eight. I think part of the way that they they addressed it in front of this whole crowd of dudes that was in the gang was was a a, a way to show that that they weren't taking it lightly because they basically told me, "Okay, you want out? Excuse my language, but this was the, literally what they said: get the fuck on, and you ain't got shit coming." And to me, first of all, if you think about it, you know. In the gang, you got rank, you you have this eagle. That was an insult. It was disrespectful. But then my mind and my heart said, you got a way out. Take it while you had a chance. Because if you fight this, you're going to be stuck. Like, just that quick. And I looked at both of them, and the other guy says, you heard what the fuck he said, go. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is either my out or my in. Meaning, if I leave now, I'm going to be out, or all these guys going to come after me. So I remember walking away from the area where, all, where we all hung out at, and waiting for 
people to come stab me. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to respond to that. And walking around on the yard that whole day and then that night, and there's one guy coming up to me, uh, Sam, just saying, man, just don't get caught up in that, man. Like, you got a chance. And I remember him saying, you got, you got heart to do that. I literally did not go back. I, I stuck with the church. I stuck with, with school. I stuck with programs. And little by little, the guys who at one point did not respect my decision began to respect it. Yeah. And not only respect it, but begin to ask me, can you help me get in college? Can you help me get in this group? And many of those guys that, that like, there's a guy named George. He passed away when he came home. But I remember I had come home and, and talking to George, and he was like, man, I finally made that decision to change. He came home and he started working with youth. And sadly, he, his, his, his call, God called him home sooner than I would have hoped. But seeing this guy, because he had, he was one of those guys that had like elevated rank, so to speak. And for him to make that decision while he was inside, just demonstrated that change is possible. It, it's not easy. Uh, for the family members that, that, that may be listening to this, it's not going to be easy. And sometimes it can be quite dangerous. And it's, and it's scary. For me, I just thought to myself, honestly, if, if I'm going to do this, the most important people in my life, my, my mom and my daughter, I can't keep putting them through this. And, and finally, I just I, I just said, I'm, I'm willing. I was willing to die for the gang one time. I'm willing to die for, for what's right now. Peer pressure works both ways. Yeah. You can have peer pressure where you, 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 you feel obligated to do something negative and it works the exact same way. Peer pressure where you're obligated where I, I, I just have to do the right thing because all my homies are doing the right thing or because my big homies are doing the right thing. Or, or But but that peer pressure can work both ways. And, and once you figure out how to, how to make that work, especially inside these institutions and, and you have uh, people that demonstrate that, that it's possible that you can do it, it becomes, I know and Saturday Central became a culture almost. Uh, it became, I remember sitting on the benches where all the homeboys hung out, and for years you would hear the stories of lowriders and dope dealers and how many girls they had and all this. And then one day I just noticed all of a sudden two of the homeboys were having a debate about Pavlov's theory. And then uh, uh, the Electoral College and why uh, Barack Obama will, will get elected as opposed to Hillary Clinton. I mean, understanding where the Electoral College came from. And I'm like, wait a minute. Am I sitting in the right area? And you look back and it's like these two dudes that are supposed to be hardcore gangsters are now have transformed themselves into college students that understand the impact and the ramification of not only voting rights in the Electoral College, but also how humans think and how they can be conditioned. So when I came home, I knew I wanted to continue to help people. And I knew I wanted to change the system. And I, and I knew that I could do it. I just didn't know how. So literally every place I went, I would just try to share that I had been part of what tore down our community. And I want to be part of building the community up. And in some instances, I got shut down. I actually got shut down by one of our fire chiefs during a, a, a community meeting because I tried to share with him, like, for so many years, I was the plague on the community. He's like, we don't have time for that now. And there was a pastor named Chip Murray. He was the, the pastor of uh, First AME Church for, like, 40 years. I continued to attempt to speak and, and share. I want to be able to give back. I want to be able to help young men that, were, that are like me. And finally, the fire chief said, you need to sit down now. And I remember sitting down, and I had read about Chip Murray, but I didn't know what he looked like. I remember him asking me, he said, young man, he said, 
how did you gain so much wisdom? And I looked over at him and I said, God, my mom. And he just nodded his head. And I did not realize this is who I was sitting next to. And then they called him to speak. And I will never forget, he literally, I don't know what he was going to speak on at first, but he spoke on reentry. And there were not a lot of lifers that were at home at that time. And he pointed me out. He said, this young man came home and he's representative of other people that will be coming home and we need to embrace them. We do not need to silence him. He just basically took us on a journey from, from slavery to mass incarceration to how we can change those things. And he looked at me across the room and he said, son, don't ever quit telling your story. And he walked out the back door. I've never seen him since then. He's still around, but uh, I've never seen him since then. But I remember no matter where I go, I'm going to just keep doing this. And uh, it emboldened me in a way. It was like a, like God saying, look, you're on the right path. You don't have to figure it out. We'll put some hurdles in your way to make sure that, that you understand that you have to work hard for this. Ultimately, I had to first figure out how to make a living too, which was hard at first coming home. So my first job was at a place called Petco. I'm, I'm jumping to Petco for a reason. I, I was volunteering at different organizations as a formerly incarcerated, former lifer. There were not a lot of lifers out at that time. And uh, no one wanted to like really pay me at that time because my skill set as a facilitator, as a youth counselor, I was the, the rookie that had, had, had not proven himself yet, but he can volunteer his time. And so I was working at Petco making $8.15 an hour while volunteering at an organization called Shields for Families. Shields for Families volunteering turned into an unpaid internship almost immediately. So certain requirements, responsibilities, but I was able to get all of the young people, uh, 16 to 24, 8 to 16 to 24, actually in a room and run exercise, AVP exercises, we care exercises. And people want to know, how did you do that? Like, I listened to them. I let them know that I care, that I'm going to be here. And so that literally translated into an intern, a paid internship with friends outside through uh, the Foothill uh, Development Training Agency in Pasadena. And people all along the way literally pointed me to the right people to speak to. A lady named uh, Diane Russell, Sarah Mendoza, literally set me up on an interview with a lady named Mary Weaver who ran Friends Outside. She said, you can come intern for me. No benefits, $10 an hour. And it was helping people that, that were incarcerated find jobs. That was my job was to go find companies that would hire people like us. And I, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. And they said, we're going to give you some training. Don't worry about it. So I started learning how to do case management. I started learning how to do job development, which is some classes that friends outside allowed me to go to. Uh, and then Shields for Families calls me from out of nowhere and offers me a full-time job. So about 60 days into my internship, I go to marry the executive director of Friends Outside, and I give her my two-week notice, and she said, well, wait a minute, I have a seat. Uh, can you tell me what they offered you? And I told her, she said, well, can I give you a counteroffer? And she gave me a counteroffer that, that was really much better than, than Shields for Families. Uh, not to say anything bad about Shields for Families, they do great work. And so I end up working full-time for, for Friends Outside. My job was literally to help people get on track. So it was multiple responsibilities, but mainly I was a case manager when I started and also a recruiter from inside. So I started reaching back into the institution, including Soledad, telling guys, when you come home, come see me. I help you get a job. I help you get in school. I went from case manager to uh, project manager of their Rexel grant, which was a $1.2 million federal grant through the Department of Labor that helped 
478 people either getting school or jobs or something else to help them transition out. While I'm doing this work, I meet this crazy Jewish guy. Someone calls me and like, you ever see the Hangover movies? And I was like, no, I never saw the Hangover movies. <laughs> you ever heard of Scott Budnick? I was like, no, nah, I never heard who's that. And he's like, he's the producer of the Hangover movies. I was like, okay. Like, he wants to talk to you. But he doesn't even know me. And he's like, he wants to, he heard about you. And I'm like, what did I do? And so I'm thinking Hollywood producer, like, this guy's going to be like some smug jerk that's going to like you. That's what I, I in my mind. Yeah. So I, I uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, Stephen Rojas, if you remember, uh, 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 Steve, Steve is actually the one who called me. And so I called Scott and Scott was like, can you come by here just for a minute? And I'm like, here we go. And so I, I go, I come out here to Canyon Creek and I go up to the door, I knock on the door and Scott comes out and he's like, you're Sam. And I'm like, he gives me this hug and he's like, Hey brother, I don't have a lot of time to talk right now. I love what you're doing. Please keep my number. I'll be in contact. I promise. And he goes back inside. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> that was it. Just quick and so that, that was it. Like, literally, I'm like, all right, cool. And then a few months later, I hear about uh, ARC had just started. So they were operating out of Scott's garage. And I'm still doing what I'm doing at Friends Outside. And then Scott called me. He was like, I see the jobs that you're helping people get. Why don't you become a member and see if you can offer some of those opportunities over at ARC? I'm like, all right, cool. So I started running job readiness. And this is when ARC was like literally maybe three staff members, no hole in the wall office. It, it, it was just beginning. And so I asked Scott, I said, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, just do what you do at Friends Outside. Just do it at our office now and, and help people get jobs. I'm like, all right, cool. You got the space. Yeah, everything that I needed, you made sure that, that I was able to do it. And then that first life coach position, which is a case manager, came open. And I, I looked at it. I'm like, Adrian, a friend of mine uh, who was working there uh, as an intern, said, you should apply, man. You'd be good here. And so I applied. And before I interviewed, I asked Scott, I said, uh, is this realistic? He said, just apply for it. And before a decision came down on who was going to actually get that, that, that job, Scott calls me. He's like, can you go to county jail with me? And I'm like, dude, I'm on parole. And he's like, so? <laughs> I said, if I go on county jail grounds, I'll, I'll get violated and go back to prison and my life sentence would be reinstated. He was like, really? And I was like, yeah. He was like, why? I said, because that's the law. And he's like, all right. And he hangs up. And I'm like, this dude just hung up on me. <laughs> like, I'm literally like, just so about 15 minutes later, he calls me back and he's like, okay, I got you clear. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can go in the county jail. I was like, no, I can't, Scott. He's like, I already talked to parole. I've already talked to the undersheriff. Everybody's already agreed. They know your name. They know who you are. I'm going to bring you in. Nobody's going to bother you. And he's talking real fast. And I'm like, to this day, I can't tell you why I agreed to do it. Yeah. I said, all right, let's go. I meet him at the county jail. We go in, and I see how powerful the presentation affects not only the guys that are doing time, but just the sheriff's deputies, like, shook my hand when I'm walking out. I'm like, okay. When I step out, which was the, the, the scariest part because I had never been back in, mm-hmm. and the door closes behind me, I'm like, wow. And I, and I look at, at that time, the undersheriff was a, a Terry McDonald and Scott is standing there and she hugs me and I'm like, I want to do this again, but I want to do this for juveniles and for the guys that are in prison. And Scott looks at me, he was like, okay. And I was like, but they don't let people with criminal convictions back in. And Scott looked at me and smiled. He said, you said they wouldn't let you in the county jail. Let's do it. And literally from that point on, I was like, okay. And then they called me. I ended up becoming a, the first life coach. And I sat down with Scott and Scott said, don't take too much on, but create the type of programs that you know will help. 
he like him and and, and Stro Bonacci like pretty much gave me carte blanche on, on, on creating. So we created the mentor program that's in the juvenile halls. By this time, Terry had become the chief of probation, sat down, told her what we want to do as far as using men and women that have been incarcerated to use their stories, but also mentor training to get in to go inside and work with youth that were that were incarcerated facing long sentences. And then along the way, we created what's called what's now called the Hope and Redemption Team. All former lifers that go back inside prisons and run rehabilitative programs as full-time jobs. All along the way, it was literally sitting down with the correct officials saying, this is the vision. This is what we want to do. We believe can, we can change the system. We believe we can make the system safer, not just for the population, but for the staff that works there. And this will directly affect public safety because you have people that have come home that are now healed and ready to actually be part of the community and give back to the community. And that belief, because we had a governor like Governor Brown, uh, Secretary of Corrections at that time, Scott Kernan, and now Ralph Diaz, all of these officials believed in that vision. And so they allowed us to start running these programs. We were also advocating for changes in law. So, uh, and that, that's really what ARC really got, got, really got known for, is, is, is to advocate, as advocating for law, law changes, but the laws that we passed, we've now passed co-sponsored and passed 17 pieces of uh, state legislation focused on ending juvenile LWAP or life without the possibility of parole, uh, youthful offender parole hearings all the way up to the age of 26 based on brain science that the United States Supreme Court recognizes, incentivizing and creating more programs through both the state legislature and through uh, Prop 57, which is a statewide initiative. So all of this was done with the voice of people that have been incarcerated. And a lot of people don't realize or, or are realizing now how powerful that voice is. If you could imagine, for seven years, people have been trying to get uh, Prop 9 passed. They would go up, they were advocating, it was maybe two votes they couldn't get to end life without the possibility of parole, not even end, to, to give juveniles that were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole an opportunity to go before the judge that had sentenced them and demonstrate that they were worthy of a second look. Right. Not getting out at all. But you're just getting a chance to be looked at and say, you've actually demonstrated that you, you, you rehabilitated yourself. So for seven years, they couldn't get those votes. One time, one time, Scott Elizabeth Calvin and some formerly incarcerated men and women go up and talk to some, as a matter of fact, just two. And they go up and they share their stories with the state legislators that they needed those votes for. Prop 9 passes. And then from that point on, it's just been training formerly incarcerated men and women or returning citizens uh, to advocate for laws, not just to change them, but to explain to them, our system has been doing more damage than good. Let us help you start creating a more equitable system that can help us heal. And when they started, when the state legislators, the senators and assembly persons started hearing the stories We've been able to pass that many laws, and we continue to strive. There are other organizations that are doing great work along the lines of using the voice of those that are directly impacted from incarceration. So, so that's what ARC was known first, for, uh, first and foremost for, where it was the policy changes and working with juveniles. Since then, we've also uh, started a second chance boot camp, which has now put 194 men and women into union jobs in LA County. Literally, some have only been home for maybe the last 30 days, for the first 30 days. They come out of prison, they go through a 13-week boot camp where we pay them a stipend 
uh, to make sure that they can take care of themselves. And then if they finish the 13 weeks successfully, meaning they arrive on time, have a great attitude, work hard, then they're guaranteed a spot in one of 14 unions in L.A. County. Uh, we just created last year the first ever firefighters camp. Uh, so historically in the Department of Corrections, men and women could give their lives fighting fires or supporting firemen on fire lines in California. But then when they were released, they'd be told that you can't be a firefighter because you have a felony conviction. Now that's changed. You can come home, you can get into a training camp that we have in Ventura and become a Cal firefighter. Uh, we've now had multiple graduates going to both Cal Fire or uh, individual fire programs up and down the state. A good example is Paradise. If you remember Paradise, the cleanup that's being done there is done by a large number of people that are formerly incarcerated that actually went through that training. In addition to that, we have a couple of other innovative programs that, that I can't unwrap right now, but we're working on. We just did in conjunction with uh, Represent Justice uh, three different presentations, one with the Kings, where the Kings came into Folsom Prison and played basketball with the men that were in prison. And yeah. the Secretary of Corrections, the Governor's staff, everyone's there. This is to build community, to make, to demonstrate that there are human beings in the lift of humanity in, in these different prisons. So we did it in Folsom Prison with the Kings. We did it in Racing Prison in Milwaukee with the Milwaukee Bucks. And then last week, we actually brought kids or, or young adults that are in the Department of Juvenile Justice to the Lakers training facility to meet the Lakers and to play basketball in the Lakers training facility in El Segundo. All of this along the lines to just demonstrate that these are human beings, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our children that are incarcerated and that we should treat them more humanely. ARC is 70% formally incarcerated. Uh, or, or we, our staff is 70% formerly incarcerated. Uh, we have over 1,200 members, meaning that members that have been incarcerated for any length of time from a month to 40 years. Membership means that you're basically pledging to do five things, to be gang-free, crime-free, drug-free, be willing to be of service to your community, in school, working, or both. And through this membership, this is literally the backbone of our organization, our members or how we advocate powerfully for system change. Our members are how we demonstrate or change this narrative of what people that have been, been incarcerated uh, can actually achieve. I often say, I'm not a unicorn, I'm not magical, I'm not unique, I'm just a person that had opportunities and people that believed in me. If we did that for every person that's incarcerated, we'd have a recidivism rate that's lower than Norway, which is 25%. If we did that for every person that was in our system, we wouldn't have 35 prisons in California. We would not have 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. Yeah, for sure. Sam, you talked about being a part of the early days of ARC and hearing others cast vision for some of the things that you've seen come to pass today. What was it like for you to be formerly incarcerated at these tables? I'm just interested in getting your experience there. So first. As an individual, I just believe in, in redemption and, and the, the humanity and, and, and resilience in, in any individual to overcome uh, the trauma that they've suffered. I, I believe that for everybody, but that person has to want it. So, so that's my core belief. I don't, there's no negotiating on that. I believe it, but you have to want it. And I say that from the perspective, for many years, I was always told that I could never be redeemed. I could never be forgiven. I could never, I could never, 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 never. 
I was I was a lost cause. I was a throwaway. That's what I was told. And now, clearly, that's not true. But how do we translate that through action? Because, as you said, when you cast vision, one of the biggest things is will people believe in it? And people will believe in it if they can see it. And they can see it in the individual. And, and if you have more individuals, then they can see it and they can start believing in a possibility. And so once they believe in a possibility, now is how do we put action behind that? I remember long before ACA 6, when I was still on parole and I couldn't vote, and I remember having those conversations in, in ARC office, this is a bill that we should run. We didn't run it, but we had discussions about it. And then we talked about the right to be able to serve on a jury trial. I had received two jury summonses and literally, the first one I filled out and explained to him that I couldn't serve, and the second one I threw in the trash, and then I received another notice that said I would have to pay $1,500 in fines and more if I did not answer that. Like, I can't serve on a jury. Why should I even waste my time answering? It was frustrating. Mm. And so we began to have more conversations about that. So one, we co-sponsored uh, SB 310, which is uh, the, the Senate bill that now allows people who have a felony conviction to serve on jury trial. Before, I, like, people didn't think we could do that. Why, why, why shouldn't we do that? If we're still citizens. I'm still a citizen, right? Isn't that a right? Shouldn't I be connected to my community? Do you want me to be whole? Do you want me to be bought? Do you want me to buy into our community? And the same thing with voting rights. If you think in terms of other countries that we're supposed to be the leader of the free world, so to speak. If we're the leader of the free world, why do we treat our own citizens as less humane than, than we would treat someone else? In Norway, Finland, and other Scandinavian countries, you don't lose any of those rights. You're still a citizen. You did something wrong. So literally, when we look at it from this terms, going to prison is the punishment. Being removed from your family, that's the punishment. Not losing your rights, being removed from society and put here until you can get better. Yep. And our investment in those individuals, like the investment in me, is to help me get better so that I can come home and get back. So ACA six, the voting rights, why wouldn't we not? We should that should be automatic. We shouldn't even have to run a bill for that. Common sense says you're gonna have fifty-one thousand people that are eventually gonna be able to vote when they get off parole. Why do they have to wait until they get off parole? These are people that are paying taxes right now. They're in the community living. They're giving back to the community. Why shouldn't they have the right to vote? So if we start looking at it in terms of this is just a larger community, or, or do we want our communities to be better? Because if I'm invested, if I'm a voter, if I'm receiving jury summonses and, and actually serving on a jury, am I connected to the community? Am I a part of the community? I bought into the community. That helps with the, the transition from being incarcerated. That's part of the rehabilitative process. And that's part of including a person uh, in it. So when, when we talk about laying out division, here's the thing. With politics, sometimes you have to do polling to determine how far you can push the envelope. When we did SB 260, it was successful because it was juveniles. We had to wait till we had enough people out on SB 260 to do SB 261. Because everybody said it was going to create more violence. SB 261 led to AB 1308. But we had to do it incrementally. Now we have a governor that's against the death penalty. And we, we, we've eliminated life without the possibility of parole for juveniles. What's the correct next move? When we look in politics, like you can't get rid of both LWAP and a death penalty at the same time. You can get too much pushback. 
so the formula has been to incrementally change these things and, and to show two things. One, it does not negatively impact public safety. In fact, it enhances public safety. And two, for those that are, that are fiscally conservative, it saves money. It saves a whole lot of money, so that's less money. And once you can demonstrate those two things, you remove two of the biggest hurdles that you have in, in policy change. The vision part is understanding that anything is possible if it's for the good. The hard part about being good or right is that you have to be strong, meaning you can be, going back to Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was right. Civil rights movement was right. But you have to also be strong, meaning that you have to have numbers. You have to have the people behind you. And so when we get into the vision part, we have to understand no matter how right I am or you are, no matter how good this is, we still have to take it into consideration. You've got a lot of people that's not going to see it that way. So how do we sway them? And then once we sway them, do we have the numbers to actually pass a bill this this way? Because the vision, sometimes you have to, in order to achieve the, the big vision, you have to fight a bunch of little battles first. But I've been in rooms where, uh, matter of fact, our second chance boot camp, uh, I had one individual at the table saying that this program could never be successful because people that have been incarcerated don't know how to show up to work on time. And Adrian and I, two former lifers, said we guarantee that we can do it. And, we, and Scott was there and Cheryl was there. Like we guaranteed it. And so initially it was, well, how many people can you guarantee? Five, 10? And like, well, our first cohort, we like to do 30. Okay, so how, out of that 30, how many you th- you think will graduate? Five, 10? Like maybe 15? And so initially it was, okay, we'll guarantee you 10 spots. And then we said, well, what happens if 15 graduate? Okay, you get 15, we get in jobs too. Like, what about 30? And I remember uh, Rusty Hicks saying, you get all 30, I get all of my job. And we graduated 28 out of 30. And all of them went to the union. Wow. But, but part of it was, you have to get people to buy in to that vision. Yeah. Sam, I want to give you an opportunity to speak to the, to the loved one first before speaking to the, the brother or sister who's still incarcerated. What about to that loved one? What words do you have for them? What encouragement do you have for them? What advice do you have for them? You know, what, what comes to your mind that you could share? I would say never give up. My mom never gave up on me. Her love and belief in me is what helped me really take it to the next level, so to speak. What I see in kids that I mentor that are inside, oftentimes they've been spoken to or spoken at but no one's ever listened to him. No one's ever said, you know what, I believe in you and I love you and, and, and I'm going to stand by you. And sometimes that's all it's going to take. You know, I know it's going to be a long route. It's going to be difficult, but I'm here for you and I love you and I, and I believe in you. Because oftentimes we don't believe in ourselves. We just don't. And I know at one time I didn't believe that, that I could accomplish some of the things that I've accomplished. I didn't believe in myself when I first went to prison. And my mom never gave up on me. And she kept telling right. me, that you can do whatever you put your mind to. So I would say to the loved ones, like, tell them that. Like, I believe in you and I love you and I'm here for you. Especially, especially when, you, when you're talking about someone who's gone in when they were young. Oftentimes, especially in the Black and Latino community, the big thing is, like, too much machismo. We don't want to talk about the pain that we felt. Uh, whatever we went through, whether it's abandonment or abuse of some time or this physical, sexual, emotional abuse, we don't want to speak to that until we bottle it up. And if you just tell somebody that I believe in you and that I love you, they will seek that 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 healing. For the men and women that are inside, um, 
understand this, that why you're incarcerated, your family's incarcerated too. They might not be in a physical cage, but they're in that cage with you. They're in that cell with you. They're going through it. They want you home. They want you in the next room. They want to hear you listening to the football game in the next room. They want to see you going to work. But you got to do your part too. This is a, a movement that, that has two sides to it. A side on the inside and a side on the outside. So for the men and women that are on the inside, understand that, that we have a responsibility to our families to, to become better people, the people that the people that we were meant to be. And understand it's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be scary. But you have so many people out here, not just your family, you have so many people out here that want to see you succeed, that want to see you win. But you got to want to win too, and you got to believe in yourself. Know that we're out here doing everything we can to bring you home and prepare you to come home. But please do your part. Thank you, Sam. And there's a quote I'd like to end with from uh, Dr. John C. Maxwell. And he says that people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And that's been a continuous theme that I hear from you is listening to people, loving people and caring. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. Is there a website? Uh, you know, what, what is the, the ARC website? People come, could come, become members, maybe donate to, the, to, to what you guys are doing there. Stay in tune with the newsletter, perhaps. Is there somewhere they could go to find that out? I'd love to have you share that. Uh, for the people on the outside, you can Google Anti-Recidivism Coalition. I will come up. Our website is, is uh, pretty hefty. It'll give you all of the information on, on what we've been doing and what we'll continue to do. Uh, for the people that are on the inside that would like to write for a newsletter, you can write to uh, ARC. Address is 1320 East 7th Street, Suite 260, Los Angeles, California, 90021. The last thing I'd like to share is this. For those who might listen to this that don't believe in redemption or uh, the ability of people to change, uh, please take a moment just to go to my website or go to anything uh, that does deals with ARC and take a look at who I was at, at one time. And understand, this is not for me. I'm not unique. There are hundreds of thousands of men and women across the nation that are just like me, that just need an opportunity, resources, and someone to say that I believe in you and that I care. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.
That's the latest and the greatest. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I didn't. I didn't. 